Hello and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. My name is Tane Danger. I'm director of the forum. This is our program with transgender rights activist and author Raquel Willis. If this is your first time joining us, the Westminster Town Hall Forum is based out of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our mission is to present voices of conscience, addressing the issues of the day from an ethical perspective. All our programs are free, in person, as a live stream, and as a podcast. You can actually listen back to more than 40 years worth of Westminster Town Hall Forums at our website, westminsterforum.org. Just click on Archive, and you'll get to hear from more than 300 of the most inspiring and influential people in the world. I'd like to thank our media co-sponsors for this program, MinPost, a nonprofit community-supported newsroom and trusted guide to critical issues and challenges facing Minnesota and beyond. Find their coverage at MinPost.com. Thanks as well to Sahan Journal, whose mission is to provide reliable, high-quality journalism for immigrants and communities of color in Minnesota. And of course, thanks to our longtime partners, Minnesota Public Radio, who record and broadcast all forums. A note before we begin. A few days before Raquel Willis spoke at the Westminster Town Hall Forum, we learned of the killing of Savannah Ryan Williams. She was a transgender woman from South Minneapolis. Her tragic death shocked our community. We took a moment at the top of the program to hold silence for her and her memory. You'll hear Raquel Willis speak more about her and the violence that is all too common against transgender women of color in the program. For now, we'll go to my introduction of Raquel Willis speaking in December of 2023 at the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Our speaker this evening at the Westminster Town Hall Forum is Raquel Willis. She is the co-founder of the Transgender Week of Visibility and Action. She has been named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 and Fast Company's inaugural Queer 50. And she has won two GLAAD Media Awards. Her writing has been published in Vice, BuzzFeed, and Vogue, among others, as well as several anthologies, including 400 Souls, which is edited by Ibram X. Kendi. Her brand new memoir, just out last month, and which we have here tonight, is The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation. Please help me in doing a generous, warm welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum for Raquel Willis. Wow. Um, thank you so much, Tane and Tim and all the other folks whose names start with T that made this possible tonight. 
Um, and of course, thank you to so many of our illustrious guests, including someone I look up to so dearly, council member uh, Andrea Jenkins. Um, yes, history maker and trailblazer. Um, and thank you all to the folks who are in this room physically and the folks who are listening and the folks who are streaming and wherever else folks are tuning in. Um, before I start, I have to give so much love and gratitude to uh, the communities here in Minneapolis and of course in Minnesota uh, across the board, just for being really in ground zero of a lot of our social justice movements, particularly recently, but of course historically. Um, in my work with the Movement for Black Lives and, and LGBTQ plus movement, I've been blessed to organize alongside some of your fearless and fierce leaders. And so I just gotta give y'all y'all's tens across the board, honey. So I wanted to start with a quote from a black woman writer that I admire so much eternally. Um, and I feel like black women and black queer writers have provided us so many sacred texts, um, particularly in considering black feminism. It was the fault of the earth, the land of our town. I even think now that the land of the entire country was hostile to marigolds that year. This soil is bad for certain kinds of flowers. Certain seeds it will not nurture, certain fruit it will not bear. And when the land kills of its own volition, we acquiesce and say the victim had no right to live. That's Toni Morrison from The Bluest Eye. And I think of this metaphor of marigolds and of course flowers um, because when I was a kid growing up in Augusta, Georgia, if you can't tell from the accent yet, I'm a Southern girl. I was raised as a little boy and I remember seeing these beautiful magnolias on this tree that reached over the fence uh, in my backyard. It was our neighbor's tree. And I remember plucking off the flowers and loving the velvety, creamy petals, that scent, and of course those waxy hunter green leaves. And then fear struck me because I knew as someone being raised as a little boy, I wasn't supposed to like flowers. And with that, I felt this sense that I also couldn't be precious, couldn't be pure, didn't deserve softness and affection in those ways. And so when I think about this quote from the bluest eye. I think of the marigolds as folks on the margins. And I think of the land as those systems of oppression that 
often tighten around our roots. And so I think about, of course, Savannah Ryan Williams, who I learned about on my way here, a trans woman who was a victim of intimate partner violence, of anti-trans violence, of patriarchal violence. And I think of how many times we've been here before, right? How many deaths we accrue like tallies on somebody's board. And then I thought about the person who got to that point where they felt like it was okay to take her life. And I'm curious about the why. Why do we get to that point where we have someone who thinks it's okay to take the life of one of our precious marigolds? And I'm often the kind of person who, of course, believes in personal accountability, but I think we also have to talk about cultural accountability. And we also have to talk about complicity. And so I think of the culture that produces people that think that marigold shouldn't exist, that people on the margin shouldn't exist. And I think of this culture that is so lacking in empathy of cisgender men who are so afraid of their identities, maybe their sexuality, their desires being questioned, that the only solution they have, the only relief or reprieve that they have is to kill someone else. And then I think of tragedy. I know we all know what tragedy feels like. We all, again, have those tallies. We can say so many names, right? Of course, we can say Savannah's name. We can say Dominique Remy Fells, we can say China Gibson, we can say Elon Nettles, Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, Sandra Bland, of course, George Floyd, O'Shea Sibley, and so many more. And I'm interested in how we move from the pit that tragedy brings us to into a space of transformation. And that's what blooming means to me. So, back in the 90s and the 2000s, I absorbed this idea as a black trans woman from media, whether it was scenes on sketch comedy shows that depicted queerness as some kind of disease, or it was in the church. I was raised Catholic, so, you know, beside that guilt that exists, I also was living in a time where I was constantly hearing from traveling priests about the sanctity of certain unions over others. And this idea that if I entered a union in the future with a partner, it wouldn't be valid. And in fact, it would be damning. I absorbed the idea that I shouldn't exist from peers who claimed my femininity, my otherness was a scarlet letter. And 
I internalized this feeling of being damned, disowned, dehumanized, unlovable. And I was a seed unnurtured in many ways. I very well was supposed to believe that someone like me didn't deserve to bloom. But it took tragedy to knock me out of that idea. When I was 19, my late father passed. It was unexpected. He had a stroke. And his death represented not only the death of someone I loved, but of the expectations that he carried. Because my father was very traditional. He was the kind of dude with the gruff voice and he'd tell me to straighten up and speak a certain way and all of these different things. He had these trappings of a traditional Southern black masculinity. And I loved my father dearly. We had a beautiful family and also those expectations were so suffocating. And so when I lost him and I started to experience the mourning process, I also learned about the brevity of life, the fact that even in those somewhat short 19 years now, I have been trying to live my life on his own terms and not on my own terms. And I learned that there would be absolutely no chance of me blooming if I kept holding on to this belief that if I couldn't be like my peers, if I couldn't be quote unquote normal, if I couldn't be like the other seeds who were primed for blooming, that my life wouldn't amount to much. Thanks to community, I embraced my transness, my womanhood, and then, of course, later on when I started doing more movement work, my blackness. And it was that love that nurtured me. But all of this, the hardships and the things that brought me hope, were fertilizer. And so I want to offer this community that, of course, just lost someone uh, very cherished. I want to offer communities across this country who are constantly dealing with all different types of violence, whether it's state violence or other types of violence. I want to think about the communities globally that, of course, are watching the genocides happening the world over, and of course, of our Palestinian fam. And I want to offer the folks who are having their trauma weaponized against other groups on the margins, this idea that tragedy and these moments can be fertilization for transformation. So I think about what we share. Beyond the tragedy, we can also share values. We can share values around bodily autonomy, around the fact that we all deserve to chart our own destinies without judgment, without discrimination, without violence. We can share the freedom of self-expression and we can share self-determination. And when I consider 
the hell of a year that we have ahead, particularly here in the United States, 2024. I don't have to tell you how much is going to be coming towards folks on the margins. We have to remember how much we share in this human experience. So bodily autonomy isn't just about one person's experience or one group's experience. It's about trans folks and non-binary folks having access to the health care that we deserve. It's about folks having access to reproductive justice and abortion access whenever they need it. Self-determination is about our young people being able to say who they are and be believed in schools and every space that they enter. And self-expression. It's about none of these drag bands that we continue to see. It's about all of us being able to access the histories and the experiences of folks on the margins. None of these curriculum bands. And it's about all of us having the potential to live full lives, to bloom into the marigolds that we all deserve to be. So we have to understand that our destinies are intertwined. I might have lifted that from Audre Lorde a little bit. <clears throat> we also have to understand that none of our lives are disposable. And we have to understand that we deserve the opportunity to come to that day when the risk to remain tight in the bud is more painful than the risk it takes to bloom. So I'm gonna ask y'all to do some labor for a second. Are y'all ready? Yes? I know we're in a church, and can I also just break for a second and say, I grew up Catholic with a capital C, if it can be more capital than it already is. And my parents had us sitting in the front row every Sunday. I felt the pastor spit, the priest spit on my face. I, I'll consider it a second baptism. So it is wild to be speaking from a pulpit today, and I'm praying I don't get struck down by anything. But I trust that if we all join in this moment and create our own chorus, that I'll be okay. So thank you. So can I ask you to repeat after me? Yes, okay. So this is going to be to Savannah Ryan Williams, but it's gonna also be to all of the folks that we've lost, folks you've lost personally, folks that we share collectively that we lost. I will carry your name on my tongue and your legacy on my shoulders. I will imagine the world you deserved. I will fight to make that world a reality. Okay, y'all are warming up.
but y'all sound like a Catholic congregation. And I want y'all to sound like something else. I will carry your name on my tongue and your legacy on my shoulders. I will imagine the world you deserved. I will fight to make that world a reality. Okay, all right, thank you. So in closing, all of this bloom action I've been throwing your way, I want you to take away, again, this idea that all of these moments, the hard ones, the hopeful ones, are fertilizer. And even though it feels difficult right now for a lot of folks, what gives me hope is knowing that there are ancestors and transcestors who paved ways with so much less than we have now. What gives me hope is that we have leaders in our communities, organizers, and so many others who are drafting plans for our folks to become more liberated. And what gives me hope is remembering that I always have a duty in the Garden of Liberation. And that duty is to leave the soil richer for the seeds to come. Thank you. Raquel Willis. Oh, man. Fantastic. What a fine. Thank you all so much. That, uh, Fan, uh, phenomenal. So uh, thank you all so much. Uh, once again, my name is Tane Danger. Uh, this is the Westminster Town Hall Forum coming to you from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, we are speaking this evening with Raquel Willis, the author of the new book, The Risk It Takes to Bloom. We're moving into the portion of the program where we're going to open it up for audience questions from you all. Okay, well, this is, I, I'm going to just go straight to a, the reader or a audience question. Uh, very first one on top of my list here. It says, what are you reading right now that inspires you in your mission and work? Um, I am reading a book called People Collide by Isle McElroy. It's fiction. Um, so that is cool. Um, I mean, honestly, I had to be on a bit of a reading detox to get through writing this book. I know. Because I didn't want to absorb too much, but... Can we talk about the, the book for just a... The book is sure. phenomenal. I'm going to do the... I'm going to do a really hard plug because it's a great book. And I, I honestly think that there is probably uh, an element where the book will be uh, surprising in the way for folks that it is contains multitudes. There's so much in this book. Uh, she thick. It's a thick book. There's joy, there's sorrow, there's humor, there's mm -hmm. family, there's work, there's love, there's all these different aspects to it. Um, 
I am wondering, you, you had, had a career as a journalist before, but what was it like going into this process in particular of trying to put all of that into this one thing? Okay. Um, well, I'll, a couple things. So being trained as a journalist, um, especially like, 12 years ago at the University of Georgia. Shout out to Georgia. Um, You, of course, absorb this idea that you're supposed to be quote unquote objective, right? And that often means you're supposed to be as unbiased as possible. And we know that that is, we know that we are in a church right now. We know that that is kind of an impossible thing to do. And actually what I've learned, and a lot of this came from my work in, with other folks in the movement for Black Lives, is that actually to not be clear about the fact that I have a freaking agenda is to feed into these hegemonic, white supremacist, cis-heteropatriarchal narratives that exist, right? So I do have an agenda. So... This gave me a chance to be clear about that, of course. Um, But it also gave me a chance to heal um, with family, uh, with um, partners, and other folks, um, because I really had to process emotionally a lot of things to get it on the page. So, yeah. (laughs) Uh so I, I'll just ask one follow-up to that. There is a lot about your family in this book, and it's a journey with your family, as I think it is for most of us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I'm wondering if there are aspects to uh, what you learned, have learned, you know, uh, having a journey with your family that uh, might be valuable for all of us to think about in that it takes work and it takes time, and you are, you're in a different place with your family now than you were five, 10 years ago? And, and how, how do we, what do we learn from that? So one of the things in the book that I talk about is when I came out to my dad as gay in high school, um, we had a couple coming out, which I know my trans fam understands. Um, but with that experience, he did not respond so well uh, initially. And Also, my brother didn't respond well. I mean, we got to work on men, (laughs) like particularly cis head men in our society. Just saying, just saying. But with that, um, I wasn't able to come to the kind of evolution that I have with the rest of my family um, with my dad because obviously he passed away. So that's something I'm going to always carry with me. But I think what I learned most was grace and the importance of that quality um, that I needed to be able to give folks um, the opportunity to evolve and not just write them off. And when I get asked the question of how do you deal with difficult family, I start with that, but I also want to be clear that sometimes people just don't have the range to hang. And we have to figure out how to make those decisions around our boundaries. And that might mean somebody might not 
be in your life in the way that they used to be if they can't fully accept your truth. And then I think the other beautiful thing about queer and trans community is that we get chosen family, y'all. So we don't have to think about this as a situation of lack or a void because there are other folks out there that can um, be in, in that space that maybe some of those people once were. There's a related question here. It's from a student, uh, and they ask, when the pain seemed so hard, uh, how would you find a way to push through for yourself? Writing became my release. So that's why I think self-expression is so key and for us to figure out what our outlets are. Um, I was able to write the things that I didn't feel like I could say to folks at the time that certain incidents happen. Um, and then, you know, trauma and all that, of course. I mean, you have to have a lot of trauma to write a memoir, I guess. Um, but... <laughs> I think the self-expression part is is necessary. I think finding folks that you can communicate with and confide in is important. Um, and again, that might not be your origin family. That might be other folks. Um, so, yeah. Uh, there's a question here about uh, what policy uh, aspects you feel like are happening uh, that we should pay attention to. I mean, I, probably a lot of folks here in the room or listening will know Minnesota passed a lot of legislation this year uh, supporting trans rights. Uh, and so there's definitely uh, things happening here in Minnesota, but you have a very national view probably of both good things happening and, and not good things happening. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm curious what things you feel like really should be the ones folks are tuning into and paying attention to. Well, what's always important to me is how we keep people safe and alive. Um, I think that that's one of the biggest missteps, particularly in LGBTQ plus movement, is that for decades there wasn't enough prioritizing of the safety of folks on the margins in particular. Um, so that's why all of our work around ending state violence, ending police brutality, ending incarceration of folks, um, touches the experiences of queer and trans folks. And we have to have folks in leadership who understand that. And we often have not had that. So that's important to me. I think what I often focus on is the ideological shifts that we need in society. So I do think we need to move into a space of understanding gender liberation as something that touches everyone's lives. There's kind of this false binary now of like trans versus cis that I don't think really will serve us in the long run. And I think we have to start understanding that the boy, the cis boys and men who are told they can't cry are dealing with the failures of gendered restrictions, right? And the cis women and girls who are dealing with being told they can't be strong, brilliant leaders of their own lives without being attached to some dusty old dude <laughs> are dealing with 
the failures of gendered expectations. And of course, trans and non-binary folks and gender non-conforming folks, I think, provide an opportunity for everyone to kind of understand how all of those failures uh, intersect. And you, so I want, you know, cis folks to understand that when we're talking about trans liberation or gender liberation, it's something that will benefit them. You, you talk about this in the book. and There's a line, uh, I think I have it approximately about that uh, we are all gender nonconforming uh, mm -hmm. in one way or another and that none of us will live up to the, quote, gender ideal. I'm curious, yeah. uh, you've been on book tour, the book's been out. What have been some of the responses to that message as you've shared that? Well, I think I, I also want folks to embrace being a failure. I think that that is a beautiful thing. And so you're you're failing at gender norms and expectations, whether you realize it or not. I think there's been light bulbs that have gone off for different folks around that. Um, I I just think that it it's often interesting to me that there are so many cis folks who think that trans and non-binary folks are going through it when, I mean, cis folks are going through it all the time. I think the difference is, is that we know that we're going through it because of the gender binary, you know? But when I look out into the world and I see cis folks whining about who pays for what date and, you know, who's valid, whether they make enough money or not, you know, like in the relationship, I see opportunities for them to understand that we need a radical shift in how we relate to each other in this society because it's impacting every home. It's impacting love and people's potential for connection. There's a question here. Uh, how do words and language support and how do they oppress? Oh, um, okay. Well, could you ask that one more time? Yeah. I, and I imagine there's a variety of ways to, to think about this and go at it, uh, but how do words and language support and how do they oppress? I would say that when I think about the moments that I have, or some moments when I felt empowered, it's been finding words that articulated my experience. And I think, especially as someone who has constantly, you know, been on the margins in different ways, um, labels and language has been an opportunity to for me to state the validity of my existence um and i think to also just own that sometimes people are right about you know difference and I mean that particularly in, when I think about being a kid who was often told, oh, you're gay or you're just like a girl or all these things. Um, there was a way I was being seen as the other by peers. 
Now, I'm not saying, like, they could have been nicer about it, of course. But I think that understanding that I was being seen as different gave me an opportunity to kind of try and figure out, okay, well, what is that difference? Is what they're saying true? Um, and I, I think when we fail is when we shut off conversation or we shut off nuance. And so I, I wonder what it would have been like to live in an Augusta, Georgia, where young people knew that queer and trans people existed. And so that seeing difference wasn't a negative thing, but just kind of like air. It just was there, you know? So I think it's, it's nuanced. I, I, I do think that there's, of course, the oppressive piece, but I think having opportunities to articulate our experiences can give us the chance to come to new conclusions about who we actually are and who we want to be. Uh, there's a somewhat related question, but it kind of zooms forward in time. About uh, You've worked at a lot of different places. You talk about a lot of those in the book. Are there uh, ways in which different places you have worked have particularly supported you in ways that have been meaningful and valuable that you would encourage folks to replicate, things mm -hmm. to pay attention to? So in my first job as a newspaper reporter in Monroe, Georgia, somehow I found somewhere even smaller than my hometown. Um, I had this editor, even though I didn't feel like I could be out as queer and trans in that space, I had this editor who when I wrote this story about um, local drag performers, he, like, he really showed that, like, he was affirming in some way because he, like, reached out to, like, apparently queer, queer reporters that he knew to, like, make sure we were getting all of the information correct. So that was one of those little, like, glimmers in that time period that I was like, okay, maybe things are changing. And this was back in, like, 2013, in my next job, I had um, different uh, bosses who encouraged me to be more outspoken about my trans experience, particularly after the unfortunate suicide of Leela Alcorn. Um, and, and I feel very indebted to them because that was a moment that completely shifted um, what I thought was possible with media in terms of speaking um, truthfully about experiences on the margins um, and elevating folks who we've lost in a different way. So I would say those are some, some examples for sure. You've uh, been active in a variety of different like movements. Uh, you know, obviously we're talking a lot tonight about uh, transgender rights, LGBTQ movement, but you've also obviously been very connected with women's liberation and black mm -hmm. liberation. Uh, this is sort of a huge question, but I am wondering if there are different things. Another to... huge question. Yeah, Tane. well, look at look at where we are. Uh, like, how, are there different things that you've learned in those different spaces uh, that have you know been unique to those, but have helped you sort of uh, piece it together in a bigger way? It's interesting to 
I guess what I, I say I've most gleaned from my experience in LGBTQ plus movement is how important knowing that people like you existed before is to feeling empowered. Mm. And I think that that's particular to LGBTQ plus movement because of course I knew, you know, in women and feminist spaces that women existed throughout history, like across the board, particularly cis women. And I think in black movement, of course, I knew that black folks existed, but I think knowing that queer and trans folks existed shifted things for me. Because even before this current moment of politicians trying to stop curricula that already doesn't say much about queer and trans people, um, we weren't learning about queer and trans people in schools generally. So, I mean, I think I learned about the Stonewall Riots reading a Wikipedia article, you know, in high school. Um, and how sad it is that, that it took that for me to, to learn that information. Um, but even when I was reading that article in the late 2000s, I don't know that there was a specific articulation about trans folks having existed or gender and non-conforming folks. So, yeah, I think that that piece is there in Black movement. I mean, that is the movement that I've... Black liberation movements are the movements that I've most built a resolve to be completely invested in dismantling systems of oppression. Um, I mean, I would not be an abolitionist without black queer and trans folks in Atlanta. I would not be someone interested in how we can dismantle how harmful capitalism is without black liberation movements. Um, I would not be someone who believed in decriminalizing sex work. I mean, black liberation movements are the ones that have most radicalized me. And, you know, feminist movements, oof, child. <laughs> you know, feminist movements. Um, but it's been black feminism specifically, right? Which is at the intersection of black liberation movements and feminism that... It, we know there are multiple feminisms, right? But that has f most fueled me, particularly in terms of self-expression and creativity. So that is a long answer because that was a big question. I know, I know. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it way back down to earth. Uh, I've got a question here. Okay. Uh, someone someone asked, who was a person in your early life who helped and nurtured you on your journey as a trans woman? Nobody. <laughs> I mean, that's not, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to be shady at all, but, you know, there wasn't language to really understand transness and gender nonconformity that was accessible to me um, in my earliest years. So no one. I mean, I, and I think that that unfortunately continues to be true for a lot of folks. Like, our society doesn't equip most adults or parents or guardians to understand 
gender nonconformity or queerness or just difference. And there's a, I mean, there's a great follow-up question here then that asks, what would full queer liberation look like to you? Mm. It would look like people having the health care, the housing, the education, um, the vocations that they desire. Um, it would look like a gender neutral or gender full society, however you want to look at it. Um, and kids just being able to be the drivers of their destiny without holding the baggage of moldy old adults. Um, and it would look like us really figuring out how to understand the expansiveness of love and intimacy and security and warmth. That's beautiful. Um, you're right, this question says, your writing's incredibly vulnerable. Mm. How do you decide what you are going to share and what you need to keep to yourself? Mm. Jeez. People are, when they write them I mean, in the cards, yeah, they're very smart people. Yeah. Coming off of a memoir, it's like, I should have kept that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, what I, I learned about vulnerability was figuring out um, what parts of a story are mine to be vulnerable, vulnerable about and what parts are for someone else to be vulnerable about. So I had a lot of conversations with um, ex-partners and, and also with family um, about the things that I was writing because accountability really mattered to me. There are some uh, memoirs who are like, you know, I, there's this one quote, and I'm, I'm uh, blanking on the uh, person's name, but they're like, if somebody wanted you to write well of them, they should have treated you better. And I get it, but I think one of the things that's been important for me is figuring out what's mine to tell and what isn't. And, and there are multiple parts to every story. I think also having a platform means that I have to be very particular about not putting other folks in harm's way who don't have a certain platform to insulate themselves from potential harm. And I also didn't want to write with revenge in mind because it can be very tempting to do that um, with the platform. So I'm very grateful to the therapist I picked up along the way that I was able to, to actually move into deeper spaces in my relationships through this process um, instead of widening existing gaps. 
was it was it harder to write about these things or have the conversations with people about what you were going to write about? It was harder to have the conversations, for sure. Do you, I mean, and not that everyone's going to write a memoir, but I, I feel like that practice of going and speaking to people about things that really matter mm -hmm. uh, is something that we could probably all benefit from doing. Do you have any advice on, on how you went about that and what the rest of us could try? Sure. Well, I, I have to credit my family because I think even when I was coming out as gay at 14, um, there was this kind of sense of a duty to be brave enough to tell my family before I told the world. There was something there about loyalty that I felt, and I don't know if that's like, you know, black Southern family thing or what, but that's what I, I felt. And I think also with uh, the risk it takes to bloom. I, I didn't find the power in telling stories about experiences with folks without being brave enough to talk to them about it first. So that's a thing. And then the other thing I, I love to encourage folks to do, if especially if you're a writer, um, is figure out how to write your story for yourself. I mean, whether it gets published or not, there, there were a couple of chapters that I had written years ago that I didn't know would be chapters, um, and, but it just, I was able to process through that writing. And then later on, it was like, oh, okay, I'm good now. I can share this piece here. There, uh, you've talked multiple times about growing up in, in the South, we're very happy to have you here, uh, either in the Midwest or the North, uh, depending on the branding that you use. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, like, I think that there's probably something similar where, you know, a lot of energy and a lot of attention and focus sometimes, like, gets put in some very particular places in the country, right? Like, mm -hmm. East Coast, West Coast, like, New York or um, LA, San Francisco, these kinds of places. Um, and part of your story is a journey of, you know, exploring those places, but then kind of coming home in a lot of ways and finding a lot of what you were looking for at home. I'm wondering if over the course of, you know, the work that you've done, the book that you've written, uh, your way of thinking about place has changed. Mm. So this week is interesting because I, I did all of the Georgia tour dates this week. So I went to Atlanta, to Athens, and then last night I was in Augusta, Georgia, my hometown. And it was like a very healing, cathartic experience to just go home And be this truer version of myself, which is definitely not a version I would have imagined when I left that could exist in that space and also be cherished in that space. Um, but when I think about the South in particular, I think the South gets a lot of heat um, for its history, of course, in terms of 
enslavement, of course, in terms of just, you know, the Civil War and so much more. And I, I think in a way we often just kind of define the South purely by oppression. And I think that that's a disservice to the folks on the margins who reclaim, who have reclaimed it and who have resisted and been resilient for generations. Um, I mean, it was in Atlanta, like I said, where I completely transformed because there were people who were freedom fighters there, like present day. Um, because freedom fighters exist in every era. You know, I love, I know we love to have our one or two that we talk about a lot and white liberals love one in particular, no shade to MLK. Um, but, um, freedom fighters exist in every era and we're called to, to be able to see them, to be able to witness them to be able to hear them. Um, and it's not easy because you don't have history books telling you, right, or indoctrinating you with things, right? But when I think about now and I think about um, the Black folks and, and our comrades who were on the front lines, of course, in 2020 and beyond, those are our freedom fighters. When I think about the folks who are sacrificing or risking a lot right now to be outspoken about the fact that we need to free Palestine, those are our freedom fighters right now. When I think about the Jewish folks who are saying not in our names, and who are refusing to have their trauma and their pain weaponized to create more trauma and more pain. Those are our freedom fighters right now. And so I think it's important for us to be able to embrace nuance, embrace critical thought, embrace and understand how we often haven't been able to rely on states around the world or even our media ecosystem. Yes, I'm calling out the New York Times for failing on a lot of fronts. Um, we often, particularly as folks on the margins and folks who care about folks on the margins, have not been able to trust the powers that be as storytellers and accurate storytellers. And that's important for us to remember. So last question, uh, which is sort of a, a call to action question. This person asked, what's one thing that you would recommend we do to help our neighbors and our communities and be more supportive uh, of trans people in particular? I think listening to trans folks is a good start. 
uh, and multiple trans folks, because like you said, we don't all have the same experience or the same uh, perspectives. Um, I think it's about elevating trans-led initiatives and organizers and activists, um, particularly who are moving work to alleviate the conditions that our folks ex uh, are experiencing. I think it's about understanding, again, that you're having a gender experience too, honey. It's not just trans and non-binary folks. Um, and that you won't really believe that you can be free until you understand that we deserve to be free too. On that note, can you all do a big round of applause? Raquel Willis. The book is The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for speaking at the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. If you enjoyed this program, please leave us a rating or review in iTunes. Thanks once again to our media co-sponsors, MinPost and Sahan Journal, as well as Minnesota Public Radio. Technical direction for our programs is done by Keith Kopatz. Our theme music was composed by Kenneth Veen and recorded by the Copper Street Brass. My name is Tane Danger. Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope that we'll see you again at the Westminster Town Hall Forum.